True community takes commitment and vulnerability. I want you to understand something. The family, the body, the community of the church, it's messy, it's vulnerable, but it's real. If you will get messy in this place, you will see the gratification that comes with being a part of real community. Welcome to the Reach College Podcast with your speaker, Pastor Taylor Gatt. The kind of thing I liked doing in the military was we, we would do these training exercises where basically you go into the woods and you, you practice the kind of, we call them battle drills, but essentially you practice like all the things that you would have to do in combat situations. And they have a series of tasks. So, you know, you, you might have like an ambush. Okay. So you're told like, okay, you're going to do an ambush on this road. And when you're learning it, there's like, no enemy or whatever it's just you go out there and you kind of set up and you see how it looks and you do it in the daylight well eventually you progress all the way to the point where you do that like at night with night vision and then there's people playing the bad guys and you actually go through the whole thing with them reacting to you and and it's like a fight you know and it's 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 one of my favorite things we got to do it was interesting though when i was um going through a lot of that training early in my career you know we'd get told don't group up because that makes you a target and don't, you know, when you're walking through the woods, you want to make sure you're spread out, your eyes are up, you're all looking around, checking your area, you've got your gun ready. And, and so we're told all these things. And what you notice really fast is that you'll look around, everybody's just like one foot from the person in front of them. They're so tired from carrying their pack around. They're just like looking at the ground. They're just like holding their rifle and and just kind of trudging through the woods. And it's like, man, if somebody wanted to, we'd be in real trouble right now because we're not we're not paying attention, we're not looking around, we're not doing all the things we're supposed to be doing. And then I remember the first time I ever got because I got to go do some some special forces training for a while. And one of the cool things was I remember the day that we were doing some of the training, uh, we were walking through the woods, and I turned around and I could just see we were scattered all over. Everybody is paying attention. Everybody's got their rifles up. Like everybody was, was doing their part. Everybody was, was thinking, what am I supposed to be doing right now? And how do I, and all it was, was the difference in how they, like each of those different groups saw themselves, right? Because in the first group, it was just like, I'm, I guess I'm in the army and I'm tired, right? And in the second group, it was like, well, I'm supposed to be elite. I'm supposed to be special forces. And so all of a sudden they had like this image of themselves that drove them to say, okay, well, if I'm going to fit in here, if I'm going to be a part of this special and elite group, I better, I better step up. I better play my part and do what I'm supposed to do. And it, it really just became a pride thing. Well, I remember we did, um, we did this thing called ambush recox where we went out to an area and we practiced an ambush. And the reason they called it recox was for 24 hours. We just did it over and over and over again. Right? We just switched up who was in what position, and you just did it again, and you did it again, and you did it again. And by the time you got till, you know, it was like four the next morning, and you're doing it in the dark with night vision, and there's an actual, you know, enemy that you're fighting or whatever. And so it was, we got really good at it. I mean, we, everybody knew every part of it. And it was, it was pretty cool to see. Well, meanwhile, the exact same 
thing happens in the regular army, and like <laughs> there's like a leader who's making everybody go to the right places, and then before the enemy even gets there, like everyone's asleep. Like everyone's in their positions, just like head down, like <laughs> not paying attention because no one cared. No one had they didn't they didn't see themselves as some kind of war fighter or some kind of special unit or whatever. So they just quit caring. And there wasn't a lot at stake because all that's going to happen is maybe somebody's going to get mad at them, right? Whereas in the special forces training, it was like if you're the guy that keeps falling asleep, they're going to kick you out. Like it's going to be the end of you in that group. Right, so there was this level of expectation and pride that came with it, and I remember one of the things that we, that we learned is when you would set up for these for like an ambush, you had a group that was going to do like the action. They were going to be the group that was actually attacking whatever we were ambushing, and then you had these groups on the side that were just security. Well, here's the thing: the security is the really boring spot. It's like you're just hanging out off in the edges to make sure nobody comes up behind you while you're while you're doing this whole thing, right? It's super boring, except for the part where if you don't do it right, everybody else dies. Right? So it, so you're sitting out there all by your, you know, it's like you and a buddy hanging out on the edge. Everyone else is getting to do the cool part, but if you don't do your job and somebody does come up that road, if you've decided to take a nap over there, everybody else is in trouble. Everyone else is in big trouble. You still had to do your part, even though you didn't have maybe the flashiest part, maybe the part that everybody was going to be the most impressed with, or definitely nobody was volunteering for. Nobody was like, yeah, put me out there on the fringe where I'm just going to like try to not fall asleep the entire time. Nobody wanted to do that. See, what we're going to look at today is Paul talking about the body of Christ. He's going to talk about the church as this element of different parts of one group. And what we're going to see is the Corinthian church is struggling with a bad body image of themselves. They are not looking at themselves with this sort of this holistic pride and everybody playing their part and everybody trying to make the church what it's supposed to be, the body of Christ. Instead, they're struggling with these kind of petty, prideful uh, every every man for himself, everybody's trying to prove their own worth situation because they weren't looking at themselves correctly. They didn't see who they were supposed to be. And so now you've got the people who are doing the flashy action stuff, telling the people on the outside edges that are still doing an incredibly important job, you don't matter, we don't need you. See, nobody in that ambush setup, nobody on the assault team is like, we don't need security. Like, we'll be fine with that. No, we knew how important those guys were. We're like, please stay awake so that we don't get snuck up on, right? And so the Corinthian church in this situation, they have these people with the flashy gifts who are basically looking down on these very vital roles in the church that aren't quite as important, right, in their eyes. And Paul is going to start this passage. He is going to basically uh, transition. We've been talking about you know, meat sacrifice to idols and navigating what's sin and what's not sin. And in chapter 12, he's going to completely change lanes. He's going to start addressing this problem with um, with this group that seems to think they're spiritual. Okay, it seems to think they're more spiritual than others. So what I want you to see here is as we begin this, this portion of Scripture, the next three chapters have a theme. The next three chapters, the theme is speech. 
speaking, talking, right? And it's going to be different aspects of that. But the vehicle, I told you the vehicle for the last conversation was meat sacrificed to idols. And so Paul used meat sacrificed to idols to talk through how do we navigate sin in, in our lives, in the church? How do we understand what is sin? And he basically lands on, don't do anything that distracts from the gospel. But he uses meat sacrificed to idols as the vehicle for that conversation. So now he's going to move into a different conversation where the, the, the topic right, is how the church functions. But the vehicle he's going to use is speaking in tongues. And he's going to talk about, you're going to see today in chapter 12, all these words that are referencing saying, speaking, talking, proclaiming, right? And I don't want you to get distracted today. He really, in chapter 14, is going to address speaking in tongues. So we're going to talk about that a little bit today. But the reason I bring it up that it's in 14 is because some of what I say today is going to feel incomplete on it. You, you might have more questions than you had when you came in, right? And so the goal today is not to address that issue really. It's to begin a three-chapter buildup that ends with a, with a huge emphasis on that discussion, all right? So if you'll stick with me for the next three weeks, what, what you'll see is really how Paul deals with it, and it's important that we set it up correctly and, starting in chapter 12. Now, the reason that Paul is going to use this issue in, in Corinth is because Corinth was an incredibly pagan town. And what they had done is they had adopted a lot of their pagan rituals into their church life. Right? They had just brought it with them. And they hadn't done a good job of really dividing the difference between, hey, the way you used to behave and the way you behave now. And so one of the things that uh, pagan religions, pagan cults back then had a real problem, or a, I guess it's not a problem for the cold, but um, what they did was ecstatic speech. And ecstatic speech is kind of an erratic um, a speech pattern. It's um, more like a gibberish, and that is what they were doing in these pagan uh, cults. And th when people got saved, they brought some of that with them into the Christian church in Corinth. Now, the interesting thing, and again, we'll talk more about this as we go, is that Paul never at any point just comes outright and says, what is or isn't tongues? And he never says, and this version of it is evil, and this version of it is good, right? And there's a reason for that, that a really good reason, which is that Paul is setting up an example for us of not making determinations about things with like black and white, but essentially setting principles by which we know we're honoring God and letting those principles eliminate everything that's not honoring God. So Paul's not going to just say, hey, stop doing what you're doing over here, right? He's going to say, okay, fine. Here are the rules for how we know we're honoring God in this. And if you're violating these rules with what you're doing, stop. Does that make sense? So that, that conversation is starting in chapter 12, but we're not going to complete that conversation until chapter 14. So the first thing that Paul's going to say is he's going to say all gifts are from the one spirit, from this one Holy Spirit that we have. So look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be unaware. You know, when, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. 
Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so the first thing I want you to see is in verse 1, he says, uh, in, in my translation, it says spiritual gifts. Now, there's, if you were to look at my Bible, the word gifts is italicized, right? And what that means is that they believe when they're, when they're translating and interpreting that that's what he's saying. But there's actually a huge debate over, uh, over that interpretation because the word gifts is not necessarily in there. It actually is, it's, it's more like him saying, now concerning spiritual, spirituality. Now there's an implication that it's gifts, but the, the alternative argument is that he's saying spiritual people, right? Now it really doesn't matter either direction you go because what you can, what you can change this to in your mind is saying, now we're going to talk about the special people, right? The special gifts, the special ones, right? And he's almost already starting like a sarcastic tone here, but he's saying we're going to address the super spiritual ones. Now, whether he's saying super spiritual gifts or super spiritual people, it doesn't really matter because it's going to be the same outcome to what he's talking about. So he starts there and then he says, you were led astray by or to mute idols. And again, I want you to see this theme on speech. He says, those idols, they are mute. They can't talk. They don't, they can't give you a message. They can't build you up. And he's contrasting that with our God who talks to us, right? One of the reasons that Christians have been so devout in human history or in Christian history to, uh, to the one true God is because when you meet the one true God and he talks to you, you can't unhear it. You can't get away from it. When you commune with the one true God, there is something that happens inside of you that convicts you of its truth of the truth that happens. Why do you think the oldest temptation of the enemy in the entire Bible is, did God really say, right? Not, we use that as an application to, you know, I tell you guys, well, why do you steal? It's because you believe the lie that God didn't say he's a provider, right? But it also just applies to the idea that God is talking to you. Did God really say anything to you ever? And how many times have you been looking for an answer in your Bible and God puts it right in front of your face in a verse, and you go, but is it really him talking to me? Is that really him? No, because you need to understand that our God speaks, right? And when you are in, I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to keep bringing it up until it's not relevant. I literally just went to the Hindu temple where the priest told me we don't really ever interact with the gods. We just come to the temple to kind of see that they exist, and then we go on. They don't. They don't commune with their gods. They don't talk to them because they're mute idols, right? But our God speaks. And then in verse 3, he says, No believer can deny Christ, and no unbeliever can confess Christ. See, he's, he's once again using speech, right, as the theme. He's talking about what we say. And I want you to understand what he's talking about is he says, no believer can deny Christ because they've been convicted of the truth of who Christ is. And no unbeliever can confess Christ. Why? Because they've never met him. They can't point to a God they don't know. Now, you need to understand, this is not a conversation about merely saying out loud, Jesus is Lord. Right? We, we know the words aren't magic. It's not saying that, like, 
an unbeliever would try to say Jesus Lord and physically be unable to get the words out of his mouth. That's not the point of the verse, right? What it's saying is that no unbeliever can confess to that from their heart that that is true, right? Uh, it's the same concept as the idea of losing your salvation. You can't deny Christ once you have him because the conviction of the truth of, of who Christ is in your life, it, it will never let you go. Whereas somebody who walks away from the faith and says, you know, I, I kind of, I grew out of that. I got over that. Here's the reality. They didn't lose their salvation. They never had it. They were never able to confess Christ in the first place, even if they were able to say the words out loud. He's saying that only, and, and in keeping with this theme of speech, he's saying that only some speech is of the Spirit and other any other speech that's not of the Spirit is not of the Spirit, right? There's no middle ground. It either is of God, it either glorifies God, it either points to Jesus Christ, or it doesn't. It doesn't point to him, right? So he's beginning to set the building blocks for this discussion on when do we know that what we're saying is from the Holy Spirit or not from the Holy Spirit? Well, here's the deal. If it's from the Holy Spirit, it will always glorify God. And if it's not from the Holy Spirit, it will never glorify God. It can't glorify God. It can't point to God. Right? So that is the tone that he is setting. Uh, look at verse 4. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. And there are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of of the Spirit for the common good. Okay, so I I, uh, I want you guys to understand when, when Paul writes stuff like this, he's not accidentally, like he's not just using uh, different phrases in different places so it sounds cooler, right? He's not like trying to like write a, a neat poem, right? He is building theology and doctrine right before our very eyes. Okay, so when he says, he says that there are manifestations of the Spirit. What is he talking about? He's saying there are ways that the Holy Spirit shows itself to the world through the church, shows itself to the church through the church, right? So the Holy Spirit, sorry, I want to be very careful about my language about the Holy Spirit because it's easy to say it. The Holy Spirit is not an it. It is a he, right? The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. So he manifests himself to the world and to us through certain avenues. Now, that doesn't contain him only to those avenues. But those are the three that we have right here. And those three avenues are gifts, ministries, and effects. Okay. Now, again, he's not doing something accidental here. When he talks about gifts, he says that the gifts are given by the Spirit, right? Those are the spiritual gifts, right? We, we understand that one. That's, that seems like almost self-explanatory. But I want you to see this is the function of the Holy Spirit in our lives, in the church. The function is this unified goal or this unified effort of all of us using our gifts to accomplish one thing. We're all using our gifts as to, to be the body of Christ. Okay, and then he says, okay, but you also have ministries, and those are given from the Lord. Well, why, why that pairing? This is what I want you to see. He's not, again, he's not just accidentally using a different term. He says, there are different ministries, and those come from the Lord. See, the ministries are what we are producing to the world. It is the way we are loving on the world and loving on each other, right? So the manifestation of the Spirit in love towards its own body, or his own body, and towards the world, 
is through these, uh, through this product of these ministries. And the reason that it's the Lord is because Lord is the term for the master, the boss, the one who chooses what we do in ministry. And I want you to see this. Ministry is not just about you just picking what you you've decided. This is my ministry. It's the whole. It's the Lord actually saying, "Oh, this is what I have for this body to do, and this is what I have for you to do in this body." He is the employer, the boss, the master who is saying, "This is the product I have for you as a body and you as an individual to produce." It's the output of the church, and then he says, "Effects." The effects are the results. And then I want you to see this. He, he then applies those results to the same God working. Now, pay attention, right? Because again, he's not doing this accidentally. We've moved on. You know, we've, we're basically covering the whole Trinity in this portion, right? And why does he move on to God? You, you could say um, God the Father here. And the reason is because he's saying the outcome of what you do, the outcome of your ministry, the effect that you have on the world and on each other, that's not in your hands. It's not up to you. It's not even your responsibility. You are called to be obedient. He produces the result, right? Now, there is so much that we could just unpack just right there, okay? The easy, the quick version, if, you know, I, again, I could preach a whole sermon. We could just sit on this verse, right? But one of the couple of things you need to understand are, one, Stop getting disappointed when the, the way you're serving God doesn't turn out the way you want it to. It's not up to you. It's up to him. And then, here's another one. Stop being disappointed. Stop shouldering the responsibility for other people's salvation. Here's the deal. The burden that I have for the lost is to share with them what God has shared with me. That I must tell them about the gospel because I can't hide what the saving that God has done in my life and in my heart. But their choice, their part in that, their response to that, that's not on my shoulders, right? I'm not bearing the burden of somebody else accepting the Lord, but I am responsible for being obedient to tell them. That is my responsibility. So these effects are in God's dominion. It's up to him to do it. And then in verse 7, he gives us the purpose. Now, I want you to write this verse down because this is going to be the guiding principle for everything we're going to say about this topic for three chapters. He says that all of these things are for the common good. They are for the common good. They are for the good of the body, right? They're not for a self-centered or selfish or singular good or individual good. They are for the common good. That is something that we need to understand about whether it's gifts, ministries, or effects. It's not self-centered. It's not internal. It is for the common good. Look at verse 8. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another a word, the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit, and to another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another, the effecting of miracles, and to another, prophecy, and to another, the distinguishing of spirits, to another, various kinds of tongues, and to another, the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all things, distributing to each one individually, just as he wills. Okay, so first he says wisdom. Wisdom is, a word of wisdom is the sight 
to see through the fog of life to the consequences of actions, right? Wisdom is the ability to see where things are going to end up, right? Uh, wisdom, I always tell you guys this, not all decisions are sin, not sin decisions, right? Sometimes you're looking at, do I sin or do I not sin? Wisdom is, is, a, is a step back from that. It is the question of, okay, is this wise or is this unwise? Well, what's around the corner from the unwise choice? Always the sin, not, not sin decision. Right? You can make an unwise choice and not inherently be sinning, but you are immediately going to be facing a sin, not sin decision. So if you learn to make the wise choice between those two options, you can avoid always being faced with sinning and not sinning. Now, good luck being perfect at that. That's not really the point. The point is to learn to live a life of wisdom that doesn't always lead you into sin. Right Now, keep in mind, there's a difference between these things in that all believers are called to have these things in some way uh, and that some people are given basically an extra portion of them, right? You might, you're called as a believer to begin to live a life of wisdom. Just go read Proverbs, right? But that's different than saying you've been, you have the spiritual gift of wisdom, right? And part of how we can see that in this verse right here is he says a word of wisdom. Well, what's the difference? That word of wisdom wasn't given to you for you. It was given to you for the common good. What are you supposed to do with a word of wisdom? Help other people. You're supposed to go tell people like when they come and they say, I'm, I don't know how to deal with what I'm going through. I don't know. And you have that word of wisdom is to look at their situation and go, well, seems to me that if you go left, you're going to end up here. And if you go right, you're going to end up here because they may not be able to see that. And you've been given an extra portion of being able to see through the fog to the consequences of actions. Right. So he says, some of you are given a word of wisdom, some a word of knowledge. Uh, here, it is appropriate to mention that some of these we don't have great solid definitions for. Uh, there's a lot of conjecture about what these mean. Uh, the, my my opinion on a word of knowledge, uh, if you've ever met a believer who who just somehow knows something about your life that says, hey, are you struggling with X? And it's like, how'd you know that? Why'd you know that? How do you know what I'm going through? Right. And they've been given a word of knowledge. And honestly, that word of knowledge is very, is, can sometimes be abused, right? When you have a word of knowledge for somebody, you are not, you're not all of a sudden supposed to act as God in their life. You are supposed to share with them what the Holy Spirit has given you to share with them, right? So he says a word of knowledge. Uh, he says faith, right? Now, faith is if you don't have the spiritual gift of faith, you're not supposed to have faith. Like that's that doesn't make any sense, right? All believers are called to have faith, right? What this is talking about is a supernatural, like a doubling of that of that portion, right? So um, there is a man in our church who has done ministry for decades, and one of his, his spiritual gift is faith. And if you know what I'm talking about, you know that this man has done ministry for decades without ever taking payment for his ministry. He never charges anyone, never writes a bill, doesn't, and, and God just pours in the money to support his ministry because God told him decades ago, you're going to live by faith. He gave him the spiritual gift of faith so that he could show people what the faith, what the faith walk looked like in an extreme sense. Now, you should not... Look at somebody else's spiritual gift and be like, I'm going to do that, right? Because maybe God hasn't called you to live like that, right? Maybe God wants you to go work, right, and, and get a job and pay your bills, right? 
But in his case, he was given that spiritual gift to demonstrate that God, for decades now, has taken care of him when he had literally no means of bringing in money. He just trusted God and did ministry. He says healing. Now, there is a belief system, I'll term what, what we call the sign gifts. Okay, If you've ever heard this, there's a, there's a sect of Christianity that believes the sign gifts have ceased. There's uh, some evidence for this, even in these portions of Corinthians, that they are no longer around. I don't believe that. Okay, I'll tell you this. Well, what I believe is that the enemy has two tactics in the world, oppression, intimidation, and uh, basically telling you that he doesn't exist, hiding, right? Now, in America, what are we? We are so smart. We are the most, we believe in the science, right? And so what does the enemy do here? He hides. He doesn't tell us he's real, right? And so because of that, he doesn't try to oppress us in ways that are apparent that it's spiritual warfare, like in, in I'm talking really apparent ways, or at least not a lot, and to the point where you don't see a lot of videos of people being like, oh, look, this demon-possessed person, right? Because we all got iPhones, and the enemy is hiding that problem. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't exist anywhere in this country, and I know some of you have run into some of those instances, but largely he hides. And because of that, we don't always see the sign gifts because that's not the battle that we're facing. The battle we're facing is believing that any of this spiritual stuff is real at all, right? Okay, but if you go to other parts of the world where they don't have a doubt in their brain that spiritual things exist, the enemy there is using oppression. He is weighing them down. He is getting right in their face. He is trying to enslave and intimidate them. And because of that, we hear stories from missionaries all over the world talking about the sign gifts still existing, talking about seeing healings, talking about speaking in tongues and sharing the gospel, talking about things that are happening all over the world because because in places where the devil is using oppression and intimidation, God is answering him with his power and overcoming that evil. So I don't want you to hear me say, these gifts don't exist, they're not around. I don't believe that. I think that we are in a cultural context where we see it less. That does not mean that they are not present. Okay. Uh, so he says healing. He says miracles. This one is another one that we don't have a great definition for. It could be signs. When you think about this, there's a couple ways to think about this. There's the difference between breaking bread and it multiplying enough to feed everybody, right? Which is, again, maybe not a sign that we see a lot because I, I haven't missed a meal in a while. I mean, like, I don't need that kind of supernatural provision, right? But I'm not saying that doesn't happen. Uh, additionally, there are stories in uh, church history of missionaries going to places that worshiped idols. Um, I'm blanking on the name of the missionary who went to a, a village and they said, well, that tree is our God. That tree right there is our God, and you, you can't hurt that tree because the, the God, God will be mad at you. And he went and chopped that tree down, right? Now, like, you wouldn't think of that as, like, a miracle, but they did. That was a miracle. I mean, they saw that his God was more powerful than their God in that moment. And then he shared the gospel with them, right? Now, I'm not suggesting... You go to like the local Hindu temple and like try to smash one of the idols just to prove that their God won't hurt you. Like that won't go well. But but the point is like even that is by definition a miracle, right? And, and a lot of times we chalk miracles up. We, we explain them away. Reality is miracles are very often just God's timing, right? Like if you get to a place where you're depending on the Lord, you will see miracles because you will say, 
man, I, I, I can't pay this bill that just jumped up. And then somebody will be like, hey, let me take you to lunch and write you a check. <laughs> you know, and that's a miracle. And it doesn't feel like supernatural, but it's the Holy Spirit working that thing out, right? So he says miracles. He says prophecy. Listen, prophecy in the New Testament, my argument is it almost always means preaching. It means truth telling, right? My spiritual gift is prophecy. Now, there's a difference between teaching and prophecy. In my, in, again, in my understanding of the New Testament, teaching informs the mind. Prophecy leverages the gospel against the heart, okay? My hope is that you never come into this class and hear me just teach. I don't want you to just walk out of here with facts about the Bible. I want you to walk out of here seeing the gospel in the passage we looked at. That is prophecy or preaching or truth telling, right? So he says, um, prophecy says distinguishing of spirits. This is discernment. Listen, uh, if you want to have a good, uh, good, like understanding of this, go talk to Justin McKenzie, right? Our missions pastor, he has this spiritual gift. Discernment is basically supernatural sight, right? This is the guy who can look at you when you're in his office and see somehow into your soul. You know, it is, it is wild. I do not have this spiritual gift, right? Now, does this mean that I'm not called to be a discerning person, right? To have good judgment? No, like that's exactly, like we're all called to be discerning people. But this as a spiritual gift is basically God enabling you to see kind of behind the curtain of the spiritual things happening around us. That is what that spiritual gift is about. And I mean, you know, you, again, you want to talk to somebody who's seen some of the sign gifts, go talk to Justin McKenzie because he's got some wild stories that I'm sitting here going, it's a good thing I trust you because I have never seen any of that that you're talking about, right? And and that is, that's what God has given him as a spiritual gift. That's his part to play. That's his role. That's not mine. We have different spiritual gifts. Justin McKenzie is the guy looking at me going, are you nervous up there when you talk? And I'm like, ah, maybe. And he's like, I'm so nervous because he, that's not his spiritual gift. That's not what God has enabled him to do, right? And so he says, uh, distinguishing spirits, tongues, right? Now, um, I'm going to premise this. Remember, I said you're going to have more questions today than answers. My, my uh, conviction from Scripture, what I see in Acts and what I see in Corinthians, is that tongues is the ability to share the, the gospel across the language barrier. Right. It is basically the ability to witness and share the testimony of Jesus Christ across the language barrier. That's another reason I don't think we see it a lot, because like all of you are in here speaking English. So I, you don't need me to like manifest the spirit in that way to just get the gospel across to you. Right. But if you live in the middle of Africa and you go to church and there's 16 languages in, in the room. You may need tongues like the Holy Spirit may need to manifest in a way that we can get the gospel across to everybody who showed up today. That's why we don't see it as much. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. And I will. And again, if you'll stick with me as we go through chapter 13 and 14, I will show you what I think Paul is saying about tongues and why uh, among this big controversial debate about tongues, it never it, neither side is satisfied. Right. Because. Paul never just comes out and says, okay, look, tongues is this, and any version that's not that is wrong. And you're like, couldn't have Paul have just cleared this up for us, right? And it's like, that's, he never does it. He never does it that way. So I will show you what I, what I believe, what my conviction is about these passages over the next couple of weeks. So he says all of this, and he says over and over between each one, same spirit, same spirit, same spirit. And then he gets into verse 11, 
And verse 11 is the summary of this entire portion. He says, but one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. One and the same spirit. Listen, we are all serving the same God. No one gets to go, well, my spiritual gift is better. It's flashier. It's, it, no, it, it's not even, by the way, it's not like the whole point of it being a spiritual gift is it's not really credited to you. You don't get to be like, I'm just so talented at that thing. No, that's, that's actually the point. You're not just so talented at that thing. You are enabled by the spirit within you who has chosen to enable you in that way. So you, the only thing that should cause you to do is go, wow, thank God that he gave me this gift that I can love people, that I can use for the common good, that I can edify the body. It shouldn't be used to point to you and it shouldn't be used to look down on anyone else. It's the same spirit and we're all serving the same God. He says he gives to each one individually as he wills. It is God's choice what spiritual gifts you have and when you have them, by the way. Spiritual gifts aren't something that you can just manipulate at will. As a matter of fact, um, one of the hardest things to discern about the spiritual gifts discussion is the difference between your natural talents and your spiritual gifts. Sometimes they are a, they're a complement to each other, and sometimes they have nothing to do with each other. But if you think that your spiritual gift is something that you have to wield at all times, it's probably just your talent. It's probably just the way that God has naturally gifted you in your life genetically. But that's not your spiritual gift because you're not in control of just being able to say when and where and how you use your spiritual gift. My acknowledgement of, of what God is doing in, in my part in the body is that I don't, I'm not going to come up here and try to present this, my, the lesson that I have this week without begging God for him to use me with the spiritual gift he's given me. But I don't walk up here like, all right, time to tap into my spiritual gift, bring it to you. No, no. And as a matter of fact, I prep all week with diligently so that I know that I'm not just winging it up here because I've got this great spiritual power of prophecy, right? That's not how it works. I go before the Lord during the week and I say, Lord, help me to be diligent with my time and study the word and then forget even what I studied, what I think I know, what I think I want to say. You get your gospel message across and work in people's hearts, right? I'm trying to take myself out of the equation as much as possible, right? That's the point of spiritual gifts. That's how we're supposed to be using them. You don't pick your gifts and you don't choose when to use your gifts. And, and you also don't figure out your gifts from taking a test online. Okay? Those spiritual gift tests are actually geared towards your personal talents. You want to figure out your personal talent? Here's what, here's what they've done. They've taken personality quizzes and they've labeled them with Christian speak. Right? That's all those tests are. Those tests are actually just pointing to what you, I mean, they might, again, if they're complementary, some parts of your personality, I mean, God built you a certain way. So sometimes he does gift you in things that complement the way he built you, right? But you want to know how to find your spiritual gift? Serve the church. Find a place to serve. And by the way, service is not service if you only serve where you're gratified. And the reason I say that like that is this, most of you won't Find where you're gratified to serve until you've given into serving in some places you're not gratified to serve. And if you'll serve in some places you're, that you're just serving because you just, you're just trying to serve the church 
You might get into that and spend a season in that and God will sanctify you and grow you and build you up and then you'll go, that was a great season. I am never doing that again, right? And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. And then as God develops you and sanctifies you and builds you up and also sees that your heart is one of willing service, he will then take you and put you in the position that's built for you and will actually fill you up and gratify you. You know, there... You don't just jump to the position that you that you dream of. You serve the Lord and he puts you there, right? And he and even then he'll mold your heart around what he actually wants for you and you'll want that thing. Some of you might end up serving somewhere and just being like, "Oh my gosh, I don't know why I'm doing this." And then you spend a season there and you're like, "This just this just makes me who I'm supposed to be. I love it here." But you wouldn't have known that because you weren't willing to just serve wherever God was going to put you. That is how you figure out what your spiritual gifts are. And by the way, you can't, you can, you can be diligent with God sanctifying your spiritual gift, but you can't train somebody to have a spiritual gift they don't have. Okay, that's not a thing, right? Uh, and and again, this I'm 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 trying to be sensitive to the fact that I I can be wrong about things, and I'm I can only present to you guys my conviction about the word. And if Paul doesn't come out and say here's what's wrong with speaking in tongues, then I can't overstep that line and say say that what he doesn't say, right? I can only go as far as the authority of Scripture lets me go. But there are churches that give classes on speaking in tongues. That ain't it. That is just not it, right? Because that's not how spiritual gifts work. They're not given to all people equally in whatever gift you just decide you want, right? And so we can't train spiritual gifts into people who don't have them. He says, gifts are, are owned by the Spirit, and they're supposed to lead to thanksgiving. They're not supposed to lead you to be better than other people. Have you ever run in a three-legged race? It's awkward, right? It's weird, and especially if you don't like really know the person you're in the three-legged race with. And it's just really bad, right? Have you ever like run a three-legged race with like a small child? Like You either drag them... Or you get them to like hug your leg and you just run, right? Like that's that's the only way to do it, right? Why? Because it's two bodies, right? You don't have that same problem when you're just walking. But all of a sudden you attach a second body to your body and it doesn't work. It's weird. Things are, are awkward and, and out of coordination. You have to be one cohesive body. Look at verse 12. For just as the body is one and yet has many parts, and all the parts of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into the body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one part, but many. Okay, so why the body analogy? Why is that what... Paul uses to explain how the church should be. The reason is because your only hope is that you are taking part in what Christ has done. See, here's the deal. Christ uh, died and paid the price for all sin. But because he didn't pay for his own sin, he was able to pay that full price and then he was the firstborn of all creation. He resurrected to new life, and he is now alive 
in the flesh eternally forever. If you're not connected to that process, if you don't, if you're if your spirit and body don't die with him in baptism, right, and raise to walk with him in that new life, you have no hope. You are not going to get to heaven. Now, I'm not don't miss don't mishear me. I'm not saying baptism gets you to heaven, right? That's a symbol of you taking part in what Christ did. Same with the Lord's Supper. It's a symbol of you taking part in what Christ did. The way you take part in what Christ did is that you surrender your sin and your shame to the cross that he died to cover it with, and then you you proclaim his, him as your Lord and Savior, as your master. You follow him, right? Because you understand that if you don't participate with him in his life, you don't have life. There is no life apart from the Son. So when he uses the analogy of the body, what he's trying to say is we are all a part of Christ's body. Well, here's the thing. You can't be a part of Christ's body and me also part of Christ's body and us be separate, right? There is no part of my body that is a part of my body, but also not connected to another part of my body. It doesn't work like that, right? I think the last time I went over this chapter, I said something like, if I cut off my hand and I put it over there, what happens to my hand? It dies, right? It doesn't get to be a part of my body detached, right? I have to all be one body. We suffer with Christ and then we live with Christ. He's the head, he's in charge, and we are the body. Look at verse 15. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has arranged the parts, each one of them in the body, just as he desired. If they were all one part, where would the body be? But now there are many parts, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the parts of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary, and those parts of the body which are consider, which we consider less honorable, on those we bestow greater honor, and our less presentable parts become much more presentable, whereas our more presentable parts have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that part which lacked. So, we, when, whenever we would do those training events and we would uh, go learn our battle drills, right? One of the things that we would do is, after we trained up for several, several months, we would go play like war, like war games, like on a larger scale. So, be bigger units bigger training areas and longer duration and you would just go out and you had like kind of like judges that would follow your unit around and like declare people had been shot and stuff and so you'd have these like war games well here's the thing i was in charge of a company so i had uh, 130-ish guys right okay so i had a big part in what my guys were doing like i was controlling several different elements but every time we did one of those things we would give an award away for the hero of the battle at the end, right? And the hero of the battle is like, it's just a recognition of somebody who did something really great, okay? Here's the thing. I was never going to win hero of the battle, ever. Why? Because my job never had the opportunity to be in a place where 
it's it I'm the only person in the gap, right? I'm the one that's going to save everybody's lives and life in this moment. We had a soldier one year we went and we were in like a mountain pass in California and we were trying to stop these enemy tanks from going through and this guy uh he like single-handedly in the mountains with one of our anti-tank weapons takes out like four tanks, clogs up this mountain pass and like stops the enemy advance. I'm not even that close. Like I don't have a I don't have any chance to do that, right? Okay, this is like just like a private, right? He's one of the lower ranking people. He immediately is not considered like the most honorable or the most, you know, he's not in the most sought after position, the most important. And yet he's the one that we honored at the end of the whole fight because we said, if that guy didn't do his job, we'd all be dead. None of us make it, right? We honored the person that seemed to be the least honorable because he ended up doing the thing that mattered the most. And here's the thing. I didn't need that award, right? My, my award, my reward was just getting to be in the position I was in, right? I wasn't the lowest ranking person in the, in the group, right? So my reward was just inherent in the nature of what I was doing. I didn't need any extra pat on the back. But that guy, he's, he was considered, you know, kind of the bottom of the barrel. And so when he did that, we all went, wow, look at, look at him. Hero of the battle right there. Like, that's the guy that's, you know, I want him in my foxhole when we go to war. Does that make sense? We honored this, like, the least honorable part, if you will. That is the sense I want you to get from what Paul is saying right here. He says the least honorable is where we bestow the honor because we need every part. Here's the deal. Does my position in that moment in the battle get me anything if that guy doesn't do his job? No. Then I just die after him right? Like it doesn't help me to be who I am in that moment. I need him to do his job. He's also talking to a church that's not working together. It's a church that's separate bodies. Imagine a three-legged race, but now each one of you is trying to go a different direction entirely, right? That just becomes tug of war. That's not even, that's not a three-legged race anymore. You're on opposite teams at that point. The church in Corinth is struggling with people pulling different directions and essentially saying, uh, I don't need you, right? Here's the deal. There's this idea in the church, like if you were to say like, who is, you know, kind of the, the person, like the, the most honored or the most important or whatever, most of you would like probably say, well, Pastor Michael, right? He's the guy. Here's the problem. You go in that sanctuary today and the tech team doesn't do its job at all. You're not going to hear him. Right? None of you are going to know what he has to say. Like he, you may want to, like he may be the guy on the with the spotlight on him, but we need everybody in this church to do their job. I'll give you another one. If nobody in the nursery shows up next week, you're not going to hear my dad then either. <laughs> right? Like you, we need every part of the body to do what they are called to do, to serve in their way, or it's not going to. We're not going to be a cohesive body working together. We're not going to be able to honor God the way we're supposed to. The body cannot disconnect from itself. It cannot fight against itself. Every part of the body is needed. Look at verse 25. So that there may be no division in the body, but that the parts may have the same care for one another. And if one part of the body suffers, all the parts suffer with it. If a part is honored, all the parts rejoice with it. 
The body is not supposed to have division. You know what it's called when your body has division? It's called an autoimmune disorder, right? When your body is attacking itself, not protecting itself, right? That is not a good look for the body. And the church is not supposed to be like that. I want you to see something. Real community happens at church in a way that it doesn't happen anywhere else in the world. It says when one part suffers, all suffer. See, here's the deal. When we come in here and we share prayer requests and, we're, and one of us is suffering, we all suffer with that person. We, we help them through their trial. We bear that burden with them. You know what happens in the world when you're suffering? Everybody gets away from you. Uh, I don't want to get brought down by your junk. I'm going to stay away. Right? People look for community in all kinds of places in the world, and it doesn't come through when they're suffering. In the, on the other hand, when we rejoice, we get to rejoice with each other. We get to go through the happy times together to be a part of each other's lives in that way. You know what happens in the world? Everybody's just jealous. Everybody's just mad at you because their life's not going so well and you're going through a good moment. And that's where you'll, you'll, you're more often in the world, you will see who your true friends are when you're going through a good time. Because, because people will at least stick around when you're going through a bad time because it makes them feel a little bit better about their life. You start going through a good time, that's when people start talking bad about you, start cutting you down, start trying to stab you in the back. That's what happens in the world. That's not supposed to happen in the church. True community takes commitment and vulnerability. I want you to understand something. The family, the body, the community of the church, it's hard, it's messy, it's vulnerable, but it's real. If you feel like you don't have community, in the church, I, I, I'd be more than happy to have that conversation with you, but I will put that responsibility squarely back on your shoulders because your level of connection to the body has to do with your level of vulnerability and commitment to the body. If you will get messy in this place, you will see the gratification that comes with being a part of real community. Do you know what it costs to be isolated? Nothing. It's completely free. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to look for it. You just stop trying. You'll find isolation. And isolation, it's not vulnerable. It's not messy. But it is miserable. If you want real community, you have to be a part of the body. You have to commit. And commitment does not just mean showing up. It means praying with your brothers and sisters in Christ. It means serving the church. It means finding your place to be a part of the body. That is what commitment looks like in the church. One body, and it has one head. So in an in a infantry company, like the one I had, we had all these infantry guys, and the infantry guys always get to, get to play the we're better than you card because it's like the tough job. So the infantry guys are always like looking down on everybody else. Well, here's the thing. In our unit, we had one FO, forward observer. That is a guy with artillery training who has a radio. Now, here's the thing about that guy. He is the same rank as all the other infantry guys, low, and he has the less tough job, okay? So they all just dog on him all the time. Like, he's just like the nerd artillery guy that follows around the cool infantry guys, right? Here's the thing. That guy with his radio can do more damage and save more lives than any one person in that entire infantry company. That guy does not have added value in his rank or position, but his job is so important. 
And when you don't have him, you know it. Because when you don't have that guy, you are in trouble. Bad things are going to happen. You want that guy because when everything goes really, really bad, you need that guy to bring in the heavy stuff. And be qualified to bring in the heavy stuff not on top of your head, but on top of the enemy's head. That's why that guy is so important. Look at verse 27. Now you are Christ's body and individually parts of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administration, and various kinds of tongues. Okay, this is the first time I ever studied this passage. This is the part that got me super confused because here's what Paul just said. He just spent all this time going, guys, it's the same spirit. You're not extra special because you have you have certain gifts over others. And you're and and you hear all this and you're like, okay. And then you move on to this next section and he like rank orders the gifts. And it's like, ah, uh, what? Like what just happened? Okay, here's what Paul is saying. You do not attain your value in God's sight by the gifts that he gives you. But there are gifts that edify larger portions of the body at once, right? Here's the deal. The private that is the FO and runs that radio and the infantry private, they are not different value in who they are. We need both of them. They both have a job to do. They are both human beings that have value, right? But one of their jobs affects a larger mm -hmm. amount of things at once. So even though they have the same value intrinsically and and neither of them has undue credit for what they're doing, one of those guys, his job affects more people, right? So the idea is if, I, if I'm looking for somebody to contribute to my team and a guy comes up to me and says, I want to be in your infantry group, I can say, well, I need those. But what I really need is someone who can handle the radio calling the artillery. Well, what if that guy was, what if somebody said, well, I'll learn that. Let me do that job. Well, then I'm taking him. I need that big effect of that job. What Paul is saying here is desire the, the gifts that edify more of the body. It doesn't make you more valuable. It doesn't make you have it shouldn't make you have more pride or be more important than other people. He's saying, want, why? Want what's best for the body. Don't want what just makes you the most flashy or makes you the best, uh, you know, look the best in that moment. Want what helps the most people. He's saying, why wouldn't you want the thing that more people get loved by, right? He, he starts with apostles because he's, what he's talking about is, uh, that is actually a position I don't think exists anymore. I think the apostles were a specific position in the the early church that we don't have. But what the apostles had was authority over large swaths of of early Christian of the early Christian church. They affected a massive amount of the body, and that's why he puts them at the top because he says, "Look at all the people that they're loving, right?" And he moves all the way down because he's saying at every level. This gift loves the most people, and then this gift, and then this gift, and then this gift. He's not saying that that makes the people who do those gifts more or less valuable or more or less important to God, but just that each one of those gifts has a, a broader range of who it gets to. Now, why does he even bother to tell us this? Because in the Corinthian church right now, there's people who are claiming because they speak in tongues, 
they're more spiritual and better than all the rest of you. And so he ranks that right at the bottom, not because it's bad to have tongues. He's going, big whoop. <laughs> I, I don't care that you speak in tongues because that doesn't edify the most people. So great, you speak in tongues. There's no problem with that. It doesn't make you more or less valuable. That's not the point. You should be honoring and, and trying to place honor on the gifts that spread the gospel the most widely and the love of the gospel the most widely, that manifest the spirit the most widely, not just the gift that makes you look the best. That is why he ranks them in this order. Look at 29. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healing, do they? All do not speak in tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts, and yet I am going to show you a far better way. So that right there is, is the verse that takes away the idea of having a class where we teach people to speak in tongues, right? He literally says, not everyone has each gift. That doesn't even make sense. That's not, like, going back to the analogy, he's like, if the whole body was an eye, how would you hear or walk or eat? Right? If the whole body was was the mouth, how would you walk or see or eat? Or I guess you would eat still, right? But the point is like he's saying, like, you have to have all these parts. You have to play your part. The whole body answers to the head, which is Christ. Christ is in charge. That's that is who we honor. That is who we glorify. Your entire body is designed to point to your head. You, as a part of the body, you're designed to point to the head. You're designed to point to Jesus Christ. And then he says, I'm going to teach you an even better way. See, next week we're going to talk about love. The next chapter he says, there's a better thing than desiring any of the gifts and caring about the gifts at all. And it's about loving God and loving others. Listen, we're called to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. You should look at this text and ask, am I a part of the body? Assurance as a problem in our lives, like when we don't know if we're saved, it comes from a bad body image. It comes from looking internally at your sin, at your shame, at how you're not behaving the way God has told us to behave. But if you begin to be a part of the body and you live for the body and you give yourself to the body and you honor the head, which is Christ, you know how fast you'll be confident in your salvation? Because you can't be a part of the body unless you are a part of the body. You can fake it, but something's got to give somewhere. You can only fake it for so long. This week, ask yourself, am I a part of the body? Am I pointing to the head of Jesus Christ? Hey guys, this is Philip Jackson, pastor of Young Adults at Evergreen Baptist Church. I want to invite you to come to Reach. We meet every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Evergreen Church in South Tulsa, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. The mission of Reach Tulsa is to cultivate a young adult community that's defined by real transformation and a sincere pursuit of a godly life through training in biblical disciplines, personal development, and intentionally transitioning into independence as mature members of the body of Christ. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. 
We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Reach Young Adult Ministry is a part of Evergreen Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.